The scripture reading tonight is from the Old Testament. Uh, it's going to be a couple of selections from Esther's chapter 6 and 7, and you can find that on page 3 in your bulletin. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Hasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Hasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Would you please join me as we pray? God, we are filled with such hope this evening. The thought of your living real presence among us as you've been the entire service. The fact that you have initiated a living, trustworthy word that gives life and light to all that would hear it. What fear would hold us back? What guilt would hold us back? What dread would hold us back in light of these things? We pray none. Come now, God, and do your work among us for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
Amen. Some of the most dramatic and enjoyable moments in life, in life are when tables get turned. Maybe it's in a film, like the first Avengers, when the evil Loki, who's been bullying and murdering people, meets Hulk. And he says to Hulk, I am a god, you dull creature. And if you've seen it, you see what happens to him. He basically gets tossed back and forth. The tables turn. Or if you're a football fan, the 2013 Iron Bowl between Alabama and Auburn. Auburn, the underdog. In the last minute, they catch a missed field goal and run it back for 109 yards. I mean, even the players didn't know what was happening. The tables had turned so quickly. And this happens in many aspects of life. And as you consider the story of the Bible, uh, there may be no story that uh, you find in Judaism and Christianity more apropos about tables turning than the story of Esther, the book of Esther. Outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ, there really is no uh, switch and turn like this that we find in the Bible. In fact, in chapter 9, verse 1, in some translations, it literally says, and the tables turned. And this is what has happened. Now, you have to imagine, for Esther and Mordecai and the Jewish community, they felt like it was a long time coming. In fact, it might have felt like the tables were only turned against them. Take Esther, a young Jewish virgin who probably has dreams, right, of being married and starting a family, gets forced into the harem of the king, Ahasuerus, or the Greek name Xerxes I. She's made to be queen. She's thrust into the spotlight. Or Mordecai, who raised Esther like his own daughter, finds himself not only without her, but even after he intervenes to help save the life of the king, there's no acknowledgement of it whatsoever. Five years goes by, and no one notices anything. The only thing that happens in between that time is he gets a death sentence hung over his people in his own life. A 75-foot gallow is built in the, uh, in the home of Haman. And Persian gallows were not hanging gallows. They were actually spiked poles where you were impaled on them. <laughs> I see a lot of your faces going, ooh, you're right to say that. It's definitely an ooh moment. And there are times, albeit not so drastic in our lives, when we feel like the tables are mostly turned against us. Maybe it's in relationships that have gone south. Maybe it's with our boss and our career. We just have a perception, God, most of my life is about things being turned against me. And what this story reminds us is that anybody that comes to know this God of the Bible the tables will never stay turned against you for long. That God will always turn the tables on behalf of his people and those that he loves. And we've been talking in this series about what it means to be faithful ambassadors, faithful representatives of God in the world. And this really, again, is a critical skill for an ambassador. As they're waiting there, as they're watching things unfold and everybody else is panicking, and everybody else is going into despair. Through their faith, they're able to stand and go, it's just a matter of the clock. It's just a matter of time. 
And so I want us this evening to consider tables turning through two simple lens. One is how the tables turn and why they turn. How the tables turn and why they turn. How does God turn tables? Well, sometimes, you know, we see tables turned in dramatic ways, like a two-run homer in the bottom of the ninth. Everything changes. But many times, tables turn with small turns, almost imperceptible turns. In fact, we find the tables begin turning here by a little editorial comment, the king was having a sleepless night, insomnia. The king couldn't sleep. Maybe you've had a sleepless night before. You probably thought the only tables that were turning were, I'm going to have a bad next day. I'm going to be tired. I'm going to get sick. But this is how it begins. We're told that the king couldn't sleep, and so he asks for the chronicle of the Persian kings, which was not only an administrative record, it was also a record of those that had done memorable deeds for the king. And we have some extra-biblical references to this. The Greek historian Herodotus records that this very king, on one occasion, gave uh, a sea captain who fought for him in the battle against Greece some land. Or he gave someone who saved, not whore, but also and, he gave someone who saved his brother's life a governorship. So this was a common thing that was done. And as they did it, it wasn't simply because they were generous folk. It was very strategic because you wanted to do favors for people to protect your dynasty and to protect yourself against enemies. So it may have been that the king was in a generous mood because Queen Esther had given him a feast and a banquet. It may have been that's why he wanted to see that book. We don't know. But either way, he hears the book being read, and he understands that Mordecai, a man that would help deliver him from assassination, nothing had ever been done for him. And you can see why he responds like he does with such alarm, because he's wanting to protect himself in a way, and this was a major guffaw. This is a major oversight. And so he immediately says, who's in the court? Who's one of my officials so we can do something and act on it? And here we get another small turn. It's very early in the morning. Very few officials were in the court, except for one, Haman. Why is Haman there so early? Because he wants to greet the king and give him tea and say, you're wonderful? No. He wants to get there as early as he can because he wants Mordecai dead before the end of the day. You remember, he's having a great life. Everything's going well for him except Mordecai, this faithful Jew who won't bow down to him which led to Haman uh, causing an edict to be written to not only, you know, destroy all the Jews, but he wanted Mordecai dead. And his wife said, well, get it done immediately. So he wakes up early, he shows up, and the king greets him, and the king asks him, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men had told him nothing has been done. Haman shows up, and the king asked Haman, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, whom, God, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Now, we laugh at that, but have you, have you ever heard someone giving a compliment? Maybe your boss is giving a compliment and you can't see who's in the room and you think it's about you, right? Or, or maybe someone, you know, you hear word that someone has a crush on another person and you think, I bet that's about me. You know, so we all have that tendency, right? We think it's going to be about us. Well, he thinks it's going to be about him. 
And, uh, and he figures, this is my moment to strike. I'm going to really make it extravagant. He says, let me tell you what the king ought to do. First of all, he ought to dress the person in their, his royal robes. Uh, some Persian documents lead us to believe that they thought that the king's robes were magical. They had certain power. So he said, first, put him in the king's robes. Second of all, put him on the king's horse. Third of all, lead him through the city and have the person ahead of him declaring, this is whom the king honors. This is, in, this is the person in whom the king delights. And by doing all these things, Haman is trying to do a couple things. One, he is trying to connect himself as closely as he can to the king. Haman is trying to say, the king and I are one. And he wants everybody to see that. Maybe even hope that he would be next in line to be king. And so, you know, he's in the middle of having this daydream, this fantasy. You can just imagine Haman saying all these things, and he's envisioning himself, and all of a sudden he hears the king say, wonderful idea, go and do this for Mordecai. You know, the book of Esther has, and we said this early on, it's arguably has the most comic irony of any book in the Bible. And it's really a way that God deals with this idea. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, divine justice. You find that a trait of the evil is they mock in laughter toward the righteous, but in reverse, God mocks the evil. He laughs at those that are opposed to him and commits evil. So some of the irony and uh, laughter is coming through. It's this amazing turning of the tables. Uh, Haman, you can only ima imagine the crushing humiliation it was. You can only imagine how far his, draw, uh, his jaw had dropped. And he barely has time to go home and cry to his wife and his friends when some of the attendants of the king show up and they say, listen, you got to head off to this other feast that Esther invited you to. And here we begin to see another turn, a small turn that occurs. Now, I said last week that Esther holds a few feasts for the king and she's extremely wise in doing so. At these feasts, first of all, he's warmed up and he says to her, I'll promise you half, up to half of my kingdom. He probably didn't mean literal, but he was probably saying, listen, I want to do something great for you. He notices something's bothering her. So that's at play here. But she's wise enough to know that the more I have these feasts, the more time I give to ingratiate myself to the king, his heart will perhaps soften. And she also wants Haman in the room so she can, in a sense, set him up. To set him up, if God will so allow she wants him present. Now, this was no small risk on Esther's behalf. Again, Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that one a father in, Herod, in Xerxes' court had asked that the king would excuse his son from military service, the eldest of his five sons. And he had shown the king great hospitality thrown a feast for him, and he had also given a large sum of money to the war against Greece. And in response to that, the king took his son, cut him in two, and had the army march in between him. So you really had no idea how this request was going to go. She's taking a huge risk, but God is at work, as we know, and she sees the moment. He asked her, what do you want? And she speaks up and says this. She uses, she does two things again, very wisely, Esther. She uses the very language of the edict that Haman had written that proclaimed the genocide against her people, also the edict that the king would have signed. So both of them, in a sense, would have been implicated 
and knew exactly what she was talking about. But then she also identifies herself with her people in that moment. She binds either the death or the life of her people to herself in that moment. And the effect is the king turns in the right direction. God holds the heart of the king. He turns the favor toward her. And he says, who in the world has done this? And she says, the wicked Haman. Now, another small turn that happens. The king gets up. He's furious. We're told twice in the text he'd been drinking. So he's probably drunk. He's mad. He's a drunk, angry king. Can't be a good thing. Right? He gets up. He goes out to the garden. And it's probably not because he's so disappointed that Haman, his good buddy, let him down. You know, these guys were having people killed all the time. But he realizes he's sort of caught here. He's the one that signed the edict. He also wants to do well by his queen. But unbeknownst to him, while he's out at the garden, something else happens. Persian law dictated that you could only be within seven steps of the wife in the king's harem. And you could never be alone with her. And so in that moment, what Haman should have done is follow the king out or leave. He doesn't do that. The king walks in. He goes, wait a second, Haman's on the couch begging for his life. He probably wasn't, you know, trying to sexually assault her, as some texts would say. He's just begging for his life, but that's the king's opportunity. And he says, are you going to even molest my queen? And then the attendants say, let's put the bag over his head. They take him out to the very gallows that he built, and he is impaled on them. This is a swift turn of events, but what I want you to see is this. Radical turns of events, but they were small turns. It all began because the king couldn't sleep one night. I think you and I often, as we see how our lives are going, we look at big turns. We, we look at big things. We judge God's work in our life by big things. Will he give me this promotion? Will he maybe heal me of this big disease? Will he work in this extraordinary way? And it's right for us to ask big things for, from a big-hearted God. But we often judge, this is the way that my life is going, and this is how God is at work, through the big things instead of the small things. When you look at the literary structure of the book of Esther, one of the things you see is it's the pivot points are not hinged on divine action. There's very little of it in the book. It's small, rather, not human actions. I said that in reverse. It's not, the pivot points are not human actions, big things that occur, but rather they're behind-the-scenes divine actions that God is orchestrating through his providence and his purposes, like waking up a king. And I want to say our lives are not that different. I was thinking about my own life in this regard. I can, uh, the the biggest life-changing decision in my life that God orchestrated was when I came to know him. You you know, I said this before, I was raised in an agnostic family. There was no religion in the house. And as a high school student, I came to know him. But it really was set up years ago when I was in fourth grade. I went to a public school. They had a great instrument program. And you were allowed to try out on an instrument and give it a shot. And I thought, I want to try saxophone. So I began to play saxophone. And that led me into the band program. And it led me under a band director who just a couple years earlier had become a Christian because a student had shared the good news of God's grace in his life. His two sons were in the program. I began to not only take lessons from him, I began to spend time in their home, and I saw the beauty of God's grace in their home. I began to hear it from their lips. And there I am, right? 
But where did it all start? A little fourth grader going, I want to play the saxophone. Now, you're glad that I'm not playing the saxophone still, I promise you that. Rob Spackey can play the saxophone. I tried to pick up my nephews last year, and it was terrible what I tried to do on it. But you get my point. Anybody in this room that professes to be a Christian, you can do the same thing. It may be the small decision that happened in your parents' life or a Sunday school teacher or someone that said all of us can see the hand. And if you become a Christian, one of the things God will do is the lights will go on and you will see how he's been at work in your life all along. It's really a beautiful thing to behold. So the God that works in small ways, but also the God that works behind the scenes. If you go to see a play or a musical, typically you're watching the action on the stage and then the curtains, you know, for intermission, shut. And, you know, you and I would know, even though there's nothing happening right on the stage, there's a lot happening behind the scenes. They're getting things ready or between scene changes. We often don't have that view of our lives in God. We, so, we see no action or big things happening, and so we go, nothing's happening in my life. But God is well at work behind the scenes, just as he was for the Jewish people, just as he was for Esther. And it's in the story of redemption. An insignificant couple, lower middle class, living in Bethlehem, have a baby. He grows up for 30 years as the son of Joseph, son of a carpenter, small things, small turns, until one day there's a big turn. Whoa, he's the son of God. <laughs> God has been with us, Emmanuel. And history changes. Salvation comes to the world. So, you know, we're told in the New Testament that in all things, all things work together for good for those that are called to God's purpose. All things. That means everything in your life, the block goal you're having right now, the insignificant relationship, the thing that you might chalk up to coincidence, in all things, God is working for your good, the good of those that are called to his purpose and love him. And when you and I see that, we begin to see that he's turning the tables in our favor. There's so many reversals in this book where that happens. I mean, we've read about them, but let me just summarize them because this is the last sermon we're doing on Esther, and some of you maybe weren't here for those. Esther, right, gets forced into the harem, but she gets put in the position of queen who then is in a position to save her people. Mordecai gets passed over the promotion only because five years later, God wants to time it on the exact night in the exact place so his people could be saved. And then there's negative turning of the table for those that oppose God. Haman wants to honor his own name. He ends up honoring the name of his nemesis, but also the name of a righteous one who follows God. He wants to wipe out the Jewish people because one Jewish man won't fall down before him, but he is undone for falling down before one Jewish woman. Lots of irony that's happening as God is moving. And in Haman, we understand what is true of all wickedness. The nature of sin and wickedness has this capacity. Human evil is innately self-deceptive. Those that are committed to evil always think it's going to work out for them for the best. They always think that that's going to be the path that really prospers them. And it's only after that that they understand Psalm 73, which I referred to last week, a psalmist that had a case of the Hamans who thought his life really, even though he had all this stuff, he thought his life was miserable. 
But this is what he came to understand when God intervened. He saw, number one, God is with me. He's holding my hand. But then he also saw this. Truly, you set the wicked in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Anybody that continues to to persist in that way, the tables turn in the worst way. And I, I would pray and plead with any of you to take that very seriously. Very seriously of what a a life of opposition and hostility to God will reap in your life. The first several years of my life were devoted to it, even as a young guy. Not a good thing. But also, we find that there are tables turning in a way of righteousness and salvation. And it's most, it's best exhibited in the life of Jesus Christ. Where you find Jesus, theologians will talk about the humiliation of Jesus and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. The humiliation of Jesus is the fact that although he is the eternal son of God, he becomes just like you and me, a finite human being. He walks the lowly path of a servant. He's rejected by those, even his most inner circle in his life. He is then publicly humiliated, even though he is a sinless person, even though he commits no unrighteousness, he is pinned as the greatest heretic and blasphemer and sin-bearer. And he is hoisted up on a cross, a cursed cross, where the wrath of God is poured out upon him for you and I. He is humiliated, even though he is righteous. But then we're told... Following that humiliation is his exaltation. This comes from the book of Philippians. This was a song in the early church. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. It's the great exaltation that happens with the Son of God. And everybody that is attached to him in faith, their humiliation will end in exaltation. This is the promise of the gospel. This is where Jesus says, the greatest shall, the least shall be the greatest, the last shall be first. This is how the tables turn. One of the things you find in the book of Esther is the word feast is mentioned 21 times. It's only mentioned 24 times in the entire Old Testament. All these times in the book, there's a feast at the beginning and the feast at the end, and it really is a foreshadow of the feast that you find that the New Testament talks about, the final feast where God gathers his people to himself, and they are exalted and lifted up with him together. So, that's the how. wanted to spend most time on that, but let me close with the why God turns the tables. Two things. He turns them because of his promise to us and his identification with us. The question that was lingering 
For the Jewish community at the time of the book of Esther, remember this is a quiet time. They're in exile because of the history of the rebellion against God. They ain't feeling great about themselves. The prophets, well, they had spoken. There's not, there's not prophets that are proclaiming right there in the town. And the question that they're lingering in their heads is, is God really going to be faithful to his promises to us? Even though we've been unfaithful, will he be faithful to these long-standing promises? That was in the head of the Jewish community, especially when this stuff was going down against them. And the answer, as we see God moving in all those circumstances, is yes. He has not relented to be faithful. Our faithful, faithlessness will not negate his faithfulness. This is the beauty of the Christian gospel and the God of the Bible. And that means that you and I can learn to judge circumstances not by human predictability, but by scriptural promise. And that's a big thing. That's an ability to look out on your life and go, humanly speaking, this does not look good. The prediction and the odds do not look good. Maybe it's for you personally and something that you desire. Maybe it's in general for the church and the Christian faith. But you look out and go, the odds are down. But because of God's promise, you're able to see past the odds. You're able to go, because of his faithfulness, I see the outcome, the promise of Scripture. The book of Esther gives us that. And here's the funny thing about it. Another little, you know, irony. Haman's wife actually knew it. When Haman basically said what he was going to do, he never re revealed the race and ethnicity. And so when he comes home to have his pity party, after he's found out that he had to lead Mordecai through the city, he comes back with his friends and his advisors his and wife, and this is, he tells them, his wife Zeresh and all his friends, everything that had happened to him, then his wise men and his wife said this, if Mordecai, before him you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. <laughs> How is that for uh, some spousal encouragement, right? I mean, he comes home, and they basically, because God had had a reputation among the Jewish people, she does not worship this God. In fact, she ain't such a great person. She's the one that said, kill Mordecai. But when she finally finds out who he is, she goes, you don't have a chance. You don't have a chance. And that's what happens. It's not long before she's a widow. It's actually not long before the whole house experiences just, justice and judgment. And so the Lord, the righteous Lord, the, justice, the just Lord, basically says that those that are aligned with him, he will always care for in that way. And Jesus Christ says the same thing when he says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will build my community and evil will not topple it. It is the same promise that runs through the scripture. It is the yes of the Bible. There's a great little story about, uh, you know, John Lennon, one of the Beatles, no longer living, when he met uh, his wife Yoko. And uh, she was an artist in London, and they, she went, he went to an art exhibit. And she had this one exhibit where there was a ladder and a magnifying glass sitting and then this sort of material and you had to climb up the ladder, and you looked through the magnifying glass, and when you did, you saw this little tiny word that said, yes. Yes. And Lennon went on to say, you know, if I would have climbed that ladder and looked through the magnifying glass and would have said no, I would have probably thought, no, I don't want to meet her. You know, it was the positive word that really got him. Well, you know something? It's so true in the gospel. You and I climb up the ladder of faith into the arms of God, and we don't even need a magnifying glass. What we see on his big face is saying, yes, 
Yes, all the promises that he held for God's people were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is what the book of Corinthians says. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no. But in him it was always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. What do you believe about the Son of God? What do you believe about the Son of God? Do you believe his promises of grace? His promises to persevere you, to make you after his moral beauty, to bring you into his kingdom, to protect you and love you. Do you believe that they are a yes? You need to. You need to. But lastly, his identification with us. Just as Esther identifies with her people and saves them, Jesus Christ identifies with all those that believe in him and saves them. This is what the work of salvation is all about. It says that Jesus Christ came, and the life of obedience he lived is credited to you. He came and lived under the law. That means he had to deal with the same stuff that you and I have to deal with, the same temptations, the same struggles. He came under God's law, and he lived it righteously. Why? So you could identify with his righteousness, so that when you stand before God by grace, God looks at you and goes, righteous. And then he identifies with you in his death. For all those that believe, as he is being outcast and crucified and the wrath of God is falling upon him, he's doing it so it might be satisfied for you. As we sang earlier, full atonement, how can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. Not half atonement. And I want to urge you, if you're not in the Christian faith, as you're looking into different faiths, the question you need to ask is, is this thing about self-atonement, half-atonement, or do I get full atonement? Because if only with full atonement will you begin to love people graciously and unconditionally and freely. Everything else will be about you ultimately. And so the apostle would say, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that we're no longer enslaved to sin. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Don't obey it. Don't be a slave to unrighteousness. You have been united to Jesus Christ by faith, everybody that has. So that means you have died to the guilt of sin and the power of sin. And so that means everybody in this room that lays hold of that faith has hope. Hope in your journey to be a faithful ambassador. But finally, finally, when the question is asked, what manner of person will the king honor? You really only have two answers to that. Some people will appear before God, and their answer will be me. Essentially, it might play out like, I haven't been the greatest person, but ultimately, God, I wasn't as bad as that guy. I did my best, and I did some good stuff on earth. So the person you ought to honor is me. That's one sort of person. The second person will say this, the person you ought to honor is Jesus Christ. And then when you look over to Jesus Christ, he'll be looking at you going, and I want you to honor that daughter and that son, Father, because they are in me. So all the honor of his royal robes and riding with the king and all the prestige and power of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is bestowed, crowned, as the Psalms would say, with steadfast love. What a gospel. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let's pray. We thank you for this story, Lord. We thank you for how it reflects the Christian gospel. We pray that 
you would help us to believe this. In Christ's name, amen.